0: running has been a big factor in my life you know running made me start my own business I met my wife because running that's how I ended up here you know so running has always been a big factor in my life and I think that's why I still enjoy running at my age versus just being done with it I know so many guys who are really fast and they're like I'm done I don't want to run anymore why are you still running Because I still love it it's has become part of me
1: up everyone that was thomas rice i'm your host mario fraoli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast Real quick before we get into this one, if you're digging the podcast, you might also enjoy the Morning Shakeout newsletter, which I've been sending out every Tuesday morning for almost six years now, which is kind of crazy when I think about it. In it, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a roundup of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might also find interesting. Subscribe today at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, or you can do so right on the homepage, and you'll start receiving it next week. Okay, Thomas Rice. I first met this guy at the Leadville 100 back in 2017 when he was crewing and pacing for our mutual friend, Brett Rivers, who I was coaching at the time. I knew Thomas as a veteran ultra runner, or ultra runner, as he'd say it, who had experience of success in the sport, but was also a badass designer whose logo and branding work I was familiar with and admired. I've been wanting to have a conversation with him ever since, and this one did not disappoint. Thomas, who is 53 years old, is a husband and dad to two teenage boys who is still getting after it on the road, track, and trails from the mile to ultramarathon distances. Like me, he loves it all. In 2018, he broke the American record for 50 to 54-year-olds in the 50K on the track, running 339.26. Just last December, he broke five minutes for the mile, and he's got his eye on some age group records and national titles. Basically, I want to be Thomas when I grow up. Originally from Germany, running first came into Thomas's life when he was a young kid. He ran his first marathon at the age of 22, and his involvement in the sport has only snowballed from there. In this conversation, we talked about growing up in Germany and playing in punk bands during his teen years, and how that experience reminds him of some of the growth we're seeing in ultra running today. He told me about starting a running magazine back in Germany how his relationship with running has evolved over the years, and what keeps him motivated and excited as he approaches his mid-50s. We also talked about competitiveness, creativity, why brands in running should do a better job of highlighting Masters runners, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by BOA. BOA partners with leading brands to make the best gear even better. Born from hours of testing and innovation, each BOA fit system configuration features a micro-adjustable dial, super-strong lightweight laces, and low-friction guides, allowing you to perform at your peak with increased connectivity, precision, and control. In partnership with La Sportiva, BOA and their team of biomechanists worked to design a shoe that would improve running efficiency, reduce landing impact, and provide a secure fit on technical terrain. Enter the new La Sportiva Cyclone. Designed to go the distance, the BOA-powered upper provides dialed-in, locked-in, and connected fit for stability and confidence on the trail. Available in men's and women's sizes, every aspect of the shoe is engineered to deliver revolutionary fit and performance on the trail, and was designed and tested in BOA's state-of-the-art performance fit lab to improve running efficiency and reduce landing impact. Boa is exclusively offering four Morning ShakeOut listeners the opportunity to win a free pair of the Cyclone. To enter, head over to boafit.com slash mario. That's boafi dot com slash mario. This episode is also brought to you by Picky Bars. Picky's products are made with real ingredients that I can pronounce and recognize, and there's a peace of mind that comes with not second-guessing what I'm putting into my body. The bars are a go-to for me before a run and even when I'm just out running errands, particularly the Ah Fudge Nuts flavor, and I can't get enough of the PB&J All Day Granola in my yogurt. If you want to try some picky products for yourself while supporting the podcast, go to pickybars.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario at checkout to save 20% off your purchase of 25 bucks or more. You can also join the Picky Club at that link, which is a subscription service, and save 20% off your first box with the code Mario. Super easy, amazing offer. Take advantage of it while you can at pickybars.com slash Mario. All right, that's it for the preamble. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with me and Thomas Rice.
0: Do you remember where we first met? Um, it was in uh, Leadville. Ledville yes. One Hundred, um, with Brett Rivers. You were, I think, you were coaching him at the time correct and um brett is obviously one of my best friends i went out there actually with my son luke um to crew and pace for him and i know you had several athletes in the race and so you were out there for those folks
1: yeah i had three athletes running that year so i was bouncing around back and forth between all the different aid stations Uh, brett had a great day i think he was sixth or seventh that day if i'm remembering correctly i remember he came in like 19 hours and i'll just never forget the image of him in the tent uh after the race like (laughs) late 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 into the night just just like couldn't believe that he had finally finished the thing
0: yeah yeah he he ran a great race we like i think i paced him the way in and we ran the last uh half marathon from uh uh twin lakes uh, turquoise lake in in and i think faster than ian charman ran it that day and he won obviously won the race so. Yeah,
1: Brett, Brett closed really well. I mean, he's got a thing for 100-milers. I mean, our, our joke for that race was it was couched 100-mile, uh, and he needed that mm-hmm. goal to motivate him to train. And I think he only trained like eight weeks for it. But mm-hmm. he's got a real knack for those longer distances and a real ability to finish strong at the end of a race like that, Especially, I mean, especially impressive at altitude there in Leadville, coming from sea level where he was living at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I paced him in many hundred milers. And I, I remember in San Diego, I paced him from mile 60 to the finish. And, uh, with about 25 miles to go, he just said, let's be quiet and not talk any longer. And we did not talk one word until essentially a mile to go. And we were closing in on, uh, on Browning that day. And, um, yeah, it was like, awesome. Yeah, he's definitely a
1: And before we go on, for those listening to this, we're talking about Brett Rivers, who's a mutual friend of Thomas and I's. Brett was the co-founder, is, I still guess, technically the co-founder of San Francisco Running Company, even though he no longer owns the store. And that was my introduction to the trail running scene here in the Bay Area where I now reside. How did the two of you first get connected? So I, we had a mutual friend and I
0: was up in Lake Tahoe um, for a little vacation, and he called me and said, hey, this guy is up, he's camping on the Tahoe Rim Trail race course, and you have the 50-mile course record, which uh, I still have the 50-mile course record and the Tahoe Rim Trail 50 mile. And um, can you show him around the course? And I'm like, sure. And so I didn't know who the guy is, and then we just met at the trailhead, and um, I showed him the course, and uh, we've been like, essentially best friends ever since then. So, And he he paced me on my first 100 miler. I paced him to a top 10 at Western States and um, yeah, become like really, really close friends.
1: Help frame this for me in terms of time. What year are we talking?
0: I wanna say 2010 maybe, 11, something, somewhere roughly around that time maybe yeah 2012 because i think i ran led in uh, no yeah 2011 yeah
1: and it was 2014 he had that epic run at western states where as you just mentioned yes. he was ninth overall
0: yes the, the only the only time where i i finished western states without using a headlamp <laughs> but i was only the pacer so
1: <laughs> what else did you guys connect on besides your mutual love of running
0: you know, it's interesting. Fred and I—we actually always talked a lot about sort of business ideas and business goals. Like, he told me like about the idea of San Francisco Running Company like a year before he even did it, while he was still in his job in the Bay Area at the time. And then, I actually, my my design firm—we actually designed all his branding and all of the logos and everything for the shop. And so we often bounce ideas around like life and financial stuff. I think we have a lot of similar admirations where it's about quality of life versus making more money and those kind of things. And I think that was a, a good connection for us.
1: I could spend probably the next hour and a half talking about Brett, but I think I'll just have to have him on the podcast at some point to talk about his story and the founding of San Francisco Running Company and all the work that he's done in the industry. But I want to pivot this conversation back toward you. I've always found you to be super interesting. I know you through Brett. We met at Leadville. Before I quit Instagram, I loved following your account and your running adventures because you're, I think, 14 years older than me, and you're still running really strong and fast approaching your mid 50s. And I last year, right around this time, really, I remember it was right for my birthday, I was training to run a fast mile. And I remember following you on Instagram, and you were doing something pretty similar. you were doing more speed work, you were hitting the track, I think you did an 800 meter time trial, and you were building up toward a mile. And I was like, man, I'm like, Thomas is in his 50s. He's been at this for quite a while at this point, And he's still getting after it and trying to break five. I want to try and do that when I'm in my 50s. And it really motivated me. If I, if I miss anything about Instagram, it's that. Um, but now I can follow you on Strava and follow your adventures and, you know, check all of that out. But I mean, we're going to talk about so much here. But I'm, I'm really curious, like, what is driving you at the age of 53 to continue training hard and being competitive?
0: You know what? It's, it's, it's funny because I actually got into ultra running with the purpose of leaving the competitive racing, you know, so to, to backtrack a little bit, I, Mm -hmm. I ran, you know, 5k, 10k half marathon, and you know how it is. It's always about a new PR. It's never about just finishing. I mean, yeah, I can finish a 5K, so what's the purpose? I want to run a PR. And I got sick and tired of that. And that's how I eventually stumbled into ultra running. And my goal was to just finish and not just like think like, wow, I finished 50 miles. How awesome is that? But then, depending on how you look at it, fortunately or unfortunately, I was good at it. And then it became this new thing of chasing PRs again and trying to win, you know? And so I think I just always end up being competitive. And then, you know, so when I turned 50, I was like, okay, well, I want to be the best 50-year-old I can be. And so that led me to looking at national age group records. Oh, I want to try and break that age group record. Well, obviously I can't compete anymore against guys that are 30 years old, but I can compete against guys my age, you know. And so let's do it. And I think... What has happened from doing that, I got a lot of feedback from people like you who say like, man, this is so cool that you're still running so hard and dedicated and fast at your age. And so then it became almost like a role model, you know, where it's like, wow. And I have like, like there's like friends of my high school son who are runners, you know, that I know follow me on Instagram and they think it's really cool that I'm still running, doing track workouts. And so I think it's just a cool inspiration for other people, you know? And and I think that's one of the big driving motivations for me too.
1: So it became bigger than yourself in recent years.
0: Yeah, a little bit. And there was a, a really big, I mean, looking back, when I was, like, in my 30s, I would look at those old folks, you know, that you see at the local 5K that are, like, 78 years old and uh, stumbling over the finish line in 35 minutes or 40 minutes. And I was always, like, thinking, like, why? I mean, at that age, you know what? I know you were a good runner, but why don't you retire from running? And over the years, that has totally changed, and a big breakthrough was – I was um, volunteering at the Duncan Canyon aid station at Western States at mile 30. And that was like maybe three years ago, just as I turned 50. And it was the first time where they had like four or five guys in the race that were 70 and older. And man, those guys, they came into that aid station at mile 30 and they were racing. I mean, they were just like Wamsley. They were on fire. They were like, this, that, let's go, you know? And, And it was just, it was so cool. And I walked away from that and I said, I want to be that guy. I want to be the best 70-year-old runner, whatever that is. Like maybe I'm breaking the age group record in the mile or the 100K or whatever it is, but I want to be that guy. I want to still be there and running
1: hard. Let's rewind to when you first got into ultrarunning. Why were you trying to get away from the competitive elements of the shorter distances that you were racing previously? Um,
0: I don't know. I, I just, I started lacking motivation. So, so, I mean, there's a couple of life-changing events that happened. So, um, my dad passed away while I was in the middle of training for CIM and then went to the funeral in Germany. Funeral was a day before 9-11 happened. I got stuck for three weeks in Germany um, during the whole 9-11 time. And um, I came back and I just had like lost my interest in my fire for running. And I was really fit and I was like, you know what? why chase another PR? It's just like, it's always, I kind of lost the passion for running in a way. And the, the and I think if you don't have the passion, then it just becomes a job. I mean, if you I mean, not that it was a job because it's not like I was good enough to make money, but then it just becomes like a, a chur, a duty, something, mm-hmm. you know? And so I stopped running for almost five years. And then I wanted to find something that was not about another half marathon PR or 5K PR or anything, something where I could just enjoy running for running and being a finisher and reaching that finish line and be like, wow, I can't believe I just did this. Irrelevant of the time. And um, that was the Tahoe Triple Marathon. But then what happened, I was essentially in the lead after two miles, won the race, broke the course record and then was sort of stumbling into the same rat race in a way. Mm-hmm. But um, I had found that desire for running again because maybe because it was so different than the typical road racing. And you know, we're talking 2000 and what was that? 2005, I think. So obviously ultra running wasn't really that popular of a thing. And um, so it had that excitement to it. There was something really cool and different and unique versus now where it's becoming, you know, obviously uh, 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 you just talked about it a while ago about the whole UTMB Ironman merger and, you know, is ultra running the new triathlon, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I made that sort of a statement like a few years ago, where I said to my wife, you know, one day, like, ultra running is going to be the next Ironman triathlon, you know? And um, so obviously with the sport becoming more commercial, that wasn't wasn't there back then, you know?
1: Right. There's a lot to unpack there. On one hand, you are getting into ultra running after a few years away from the sport, and it has this newness to it that sounds similar to when you first got into running many, many years prior. It was just about finishing it wasn't about being competitive but soon as you got into it that talent was still there and because of how well you did during the race that competitive drive was still there and I'd love to just try and understand how you were trying to unpack that yourself at the time when you're trying to just finish this Tahoe triple marathon something you've never done before but all of a sudden you find yourself near the front of the field and and can possibly win this thing your first time out?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's interesting. At that time, like, one of my best friends is um, Linda Summer-Smith.
1: Mm-hmm. You probably know Linda Summers, you know, like... I've interviewed her, yeah. Talk about people who ran fast into their 50s.
0: Yeah, I mean, she broke the female 50-plus marathon uh, mm-hmm. national record. And... Um, We've been good friends. we moved to San Luis Obispo this essentially almost the same month, and we became we were kind of outsiders and so we ended up together running a lot and became really really close friends still up today we are very good friends and um and she helped me with the training a little bit at the time, sort of because I didn't have a coach, and she just said, "You know, just run your own pace, regardless of what it is so it kind of it's not like i Got into the race and was like, "Oh man, I'm in the lead pack. Let's push it! Oh, let's try to win this!" I just, I just ran my own pace, and at the finish line, turned around, and had one day won by like ten minutes or something. I was like, "Oh wow, I guess my own pace worked out to be pretty good," you know. So, but it, I didn't have a bigger. There was not much of like a, a plan in a way,
1: you know. Were you worried at all that those competitive instincts? came back up and essentially took over
0: no because i i like being competitive obviously i mean you know it's like last year i on christmas day i squeezed out a 458 mile just because i had set myself the goal to break five minutes before the year's over and i did it on christmas day you know i mean i like being competitive so i i enjoy it so i don't i don't mind that you know um it's just with the, I think with the road racing, it just wasn't not always just being competitive. It was just, there was nothing else. There was just that,
1: you know. So. Have you always been a competitive person? I think so. Yeah, I
0: was like, in, in my youth, you know, uh, you may be aware of that, or I know you are aware of that, I, I, you know. I played in a punk band and, you know, my my goals were always like, oh, yeah, with my punk band, I want to, like, get a record deal and produce a record and get on tour and play shows. And I want to be, we have to be the best band in our hometown. And, you know, so that was always been, obviously, it's not as measurable as in running where you have a number, you know, but um, I think I was always pretty competitive.
1: Where does that come from? Is it intrinsic or was it impressed upon you by your parents, coaches, other people in your life? You know
0: my my parents, I mean my my parents got divorced when I was really young, so I can't really speak too much about my mom. So like in my my upbringing, my mom was an alcoholic, so we didn't have the best relationship. And then we got a di- they got a divorce at age 12, so I don't really actually don't really know too much about my mom i want to say and my dad you know he was not really he was really chill and relaxed and kicked back i don't i don't think i've seen my dad ever being super competitive in his job or in his hobbies or anything he was always just kind of chilling and kicking back you know so i don't i don't really know where where i got it from
1: and for you today does that competitiveness spill into other areas of your life professional personal hobbies et cetera?
0: Yeah yeah I would I would I would say so I mean my my business when I started my own business I had certain goals oh so, yeah I want to be like this and I want to be like you know uh, I, I, and my own employees can probably confirm that too I'm a pretty big perfectionist you know so it's like yeah if we Work on a branding project, it's like it's not done until it's really, really good, you know. So, um, which obviously is in a way being competitive, you know. And mm-hmm. then, um, the same I picked like a few years ago, I picked up backpacking and a little bit of mountain climbing, a little bit of alpinism, mountaineering, and so it's kind of the same thing. I'm that has become a little bit of my thing where. I'm not too worried about time because it's just, unless you're a Killian and you're breaking some speed record, it's really just a summit is a summit. No one's going to ask, was it 10 hours or 14 hours? And, um, but even with that, it's kind of like, oh, well, I've done, I climbed a 20,000 foot mountain. Can I climb one that's over 20,000 feet? You know, Um, even even there, I think I'm kind of competitive with myself in a way.
1: Let's define that term. What does competitiveness mean to you?
0: Hmm. That's you know that's a, a really good question. I would say being the best I can be with what I have, with what I have to work with. Um, you know, I, I both my kids. Uh, well, my older son kind of has other hobbies right now. My younger son still runs on a high school team. And I always tell him, look, if you race, if you train as good as you can and you race as hard as you can, as good as you can, and someone's faster, then that's just the facts. That just is what it is. And so I think if you do anything you can, that's being competitive. I feel if you say, like, ah, this is good enough, then you're not competitive. That's how I would, like draw the
1: line. Is there a line that you have to draw, whether it's in your running or in other pursuits where you need to be careful not to go over it because you know that it could get the better of you?
0: Um, yeah, to a certain degree. And I mean, I think that's, that's why I still work with a coach. Even so, I know a lot about coaching, but it's a lot harder like i i've you know i have coached my kids over the years and i've coached some friends and it's easier all the things that i would tell them not to do i would do myself that's why i still have a coach because he's like nah dude that's kind of a dumb idea don't do it you know because i would sometimes probably do pretty silly things so
1: take me back to your beginnings in the sport you mentioned pretty loosely how you did some road racing and were pursuing marathons before you got into ultra running but when did it all first start for you so
0: i i always thought running was really cool and um i always loved watching the olympics and my favorite race was the 3000 meter steeplechase which that's probably because you know when i was like 12 years old Germany had some really good steeplechasers in the Olympics back then mm-hmm. so I assume that's where it came from and then um, I had a really kind of a breakthrough moment at age 10 11 in school where I won like a school race in the 800 meters and so that felt pretty good and I wanted to join the track and field team and um, i, I I have to explain why this was so important. I was I went to this higher education school that, because the Ger, the German school system is quite a bit different than here, mm-hmm. and so I went to this this school that you have to sort of test into, and I was doing probably the hardest times in my life with my parents getting divorced and all this stuff. So, I, needless to say, I never did homework. I never studied. Had horrible grades. And the teachers hated me because I was like you know smart ass and. And um, But they had this, like, um, school championships in track and field. And I got assigned to run the 800 meters. And I still think it was the teacher who organized it. She was my mathematics teacher, and she hated me. And I think she did that because she figured that's the hardest punishment she can do for me versus doing the long jump or something. And it was fifth and sixth graders combined, and I was a fifth grader. And I ended up winning the race. And she had to give me an award. And I, I, I still have this memory how much she was like fuming. She was so mad. <laughs> and so I think after that, I, wanted, I joined the track and field club because my dad was like, wow, you did good. Do you like that? I'm like, yeah. And I had, I had stopped playing soccer because I didn't care for soccer too much anymore. And, but then in the track and field club, there was no one really running. It was like... It was just old people and doing long jump and like the hundred meters, you know. So I abandoned that, and then I didn't run until age twenty. And um, but as I still had this interest in running, and uh, mm-hmm. a friend of mine was running training for a marathon, and he said, "Oh, you should run a marathon." And I, I always thought, "Wow, marathon—that's really cool." And because um, you know that's when marathon was still. I don't want to say a marathon's not meaningful, but nowadays who has not mean. who has not run a marathon, right? I mean Right.
1: It was still a big deal back then.
0: Yes, it's like they would shut down the finish line after 5 hours or 4 hours. You know, it's like you had to you couldn't just like finish a marathon. You had to really be a real good runner, you know. And so I was like, oh that would be cool. So I trained for 3 months and I ran this marathon and I ran a 256, pretty much off the couch, with like, probably like about 25 to 30 miles a week average running. And so then the local running club recruited me and said, oh, dude, you're really good. And then I ended up pretty much running. They were like, well, you're, you're 20 years old. You're too young to run the marathon. You need to get faster. You need to run the 5,000. And to get faster for the 5,000. You need to run the 800. And so next thing is like, I ran the 800, the 1,500, 5,000, 10K on the road for several years.
1: And this is while you were still in Germany?
0: Yes, that's still all back in Germany,
1: yeah. Going back to when you were a young kid racing the 800 meters in school, what was it about that that you loved was it the fact that you were good at it and won the race? Was it the feeling that you got when you did it? I'd love to understand that a little bit more.
0: Yeah, that's hard to tell. I, 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 I would say it was mostly to piss off the teacher. Like that, that kind of like, you know, like I show you kind of a thing, you know. I, I think that made me feel really good about myself because I was kind of like, you know, the loser kid with the bad grades and the bad parents. And uh, a year later, I got kicked out of that school, by the way, just to like mention that. (laughs) But um, so it was just very fulfilling to have this sort of as an outlet to show, well, you know what? Check me out. I'm not that bad. At least not in this. You know, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from there.
1: Have you always had that kind of, an I'll show you attitude when someone either says you can't do something or they're trying to put you in a situation that you don't want to be in?
0: Yeah, I think so. Which probably has worked against me sometimes, but um, I think overall it has worked out pretty good. Like like when I moved here to California to San Jos Obispo, I met with a few like local design companies and stuff just to get a feel for it and even so i knew i want to start my own business and they were all pretty much laughing into my face they were like oh yeah well good luck starting your own business here you know you barely speak english and ha 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 we'll see how that's gonna go for you and i was like you know what i'll show you yeah so i i always had a little bit of that attitude um
1: how has it gotten you into trouble I, I can't think of a real specific
0: example right now, but um I think just sometimes if you do stuff for the wrong reasons, you know, if you do stuff just for like I'll show you, they may not be the right things. Even so you mm-hmm. show someone. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it took me a few years to learn that. You know. Um like an example with with my band, we had a really good local kind of music scene and I got into a few arguments with some of the other bands and then that was kind of like, well, I show you, we will be the best band in this town and we're going to be the ones who get a record deal and a European tour and we did. But that sort of rift with the other bands got even bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, when maybe if I would have Said, well, instead of showing you guys, why don't we put our heads together and make this whole thing better? I would have maybe not lost some relationships. When I was like, I was 18 years old, 17
1: years old, you know. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you describe that just now because you could see the very clear intersection between that and your competitiveness of being like, hey, we're going to try and be the best band that we can be. We'll show you type of situation.
0: Yeah. I, I think you can still do both.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that works really well, especially with ultra running or with ultra running as I experienced the sport. Like, you know, in road racing, I mean, before a race, no one wishes each other really good luck or anything. It's like pretty cutthroat. I mean, you know, and it's like people are secretive about their training and about what they plan in the race. And in ultra running, that was so refreshing because that wasn't there. Everyone is helping each other and like, you know, versus like in ultra running, if you come by someone who has a problem, generally the first thing is like concern. Are you okay? Mm -hmm. Do you need help? Versus, you know, in road racing, if you run by someone in a 10K – with like a mile to go and you're sitting on the side of the road with a cramp you're like yes i got him you know <laughs>
1: i mean yeah. you're racing with each other rather than against each other
0: yeah and so i think that's i think one of the things that was very refreshing when i got into ultra running because i i do think you can still race each other like my 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 best friend uh, uh one of my best friends here like training partner jad i mean you know, I want to beat him every race I race against him, but we're still racing together, you know? And if he beats me, then that's great too. You know, I think you can do it together even so by being competitive.
1: What other things were you into as a young kid?
0: Um, Well, obviously growing up in Germany, soccer was like, that was it. You know, I mean, I started playing soccer at age five, um, and then I quit soccer at age 10, but still, Soccer is still one of my favorite sports. You know, I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I still love watching soccer and uh, watching the World Cup. Where, like, you know, in like three weeks, the European Championships are starting. I can watch probably every game I can. You know, so I still love that. Um, yeah, it was like uh, soccer and and then music. I got into music at a very young age. Like at at age. I bought my first cassette, you know, like I'm dating myself here.
1: (laughs) Hey, I had those too. I get it.
0: (laughs) And um, it was like ACDZ, Hard Way to Hell. That was like what I listened to as a 10-year-old, you know, and got really into like all kinds of hard rock, heavy metal, and then Sex Pistols, and then really the punk scene and really was a big, big part of that Um, scene between age 13, 14, all the way to about age 20 when I sort of started. Athletics came back into my life with like soccer. I started coaching, was assistant coach in a soccer team and I started running again. And it's sort of when I kind of also outgrew the punk scene because it got kind of, it just got kind of a little bit too crazy politically and stuff where it just didn't make much sense to me anymore. And I kind of outgrew that. When did you
1: start playing music?
0: I was in my first band at age 13 and a half. Yeah. Right. Between age 13 and 14. With other kids your age? Yeah. I think our singer was like a year and a half older. Like, yeah. Like, between age 14 and 16. I think I was the youngest one. What did you play? I played bass guitar in my first band, and then after that I became the singer because I just wanted to be like the the guy bouncing around on the stage and stage diving into like the mosh pit and stuff like that. Star of the show? Yeah.
1: How did that evolve? Because I... No, Just from what I know about you, you played in some more serious bands that actually got deals and went on some record tours.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it evolved from that and, uh, you know, I joined a new band, met new people. We got better, you know, we got real instruments, got real good, and then looked for a record deal. And, but, you, you know, you want to like a, a record deal and a tour in Europe isn't as... Glamorous as it sounds, you know, it's like we played in like small clubs and a lot of squatted houses all over Europe, you know, and essentially you would get a couple hundred bucks, gas money and something to eat, something to drink. And that was it, you know, and our record deal. I mean, the record company, they they paid for the studio to record the album. And then I think we got like 500 of the records or something that we could pretty much sell on our shows, and that was sort of our pay, and that was it. So it's not like a you know, million-dollar record deal and Golden Albums, so...
1: But still pretty cool. What did oh, you no, enjoy yeah. about that experience of being in a band and playing in front of other people?
0: Um, it, was just, it was just really fun. You know, the whole scene was just really fun and, you know, partying and, like, having a, having a good time. And even so, there were sometimes, like, some scary moments because back in those days, I mean, you know, not, not to get into politics, but um, back in those days, now the the lines are blurred between punk music and regular people because it's gotten so mainstream and everything. But back then, it was like, if you were like in a punk band, you know, you got beat up by like biker dudes, you got beat up by skinheads and there was like street fights and riots and it was sometimes pretty scary, you know? I mean, I mean we once played a show in this place that was like a, a really big uh, area for like right-wing Uh, uh, neo-Nazi kind of gatherings and I never thought about when Hitler's birthday is but it just so happened that we were on tour and we booked a show in that town on Hitler's birthday Yikes! (laughs) I had no idea we got there to the venue and they were like yeah usually we have about 500 people but today it's probably going to be only like 30 or 50 people because the skinheads have said they would come down and shut the show down. And I was like, holy smokes, why? Well, it's Hitler's birthday. I'm like, oh, it is? <laughs> and I never, <laughs> and all worked out good. They never showed up. But like, so there has been some like sketchy moments, you know. Um, but it was generally really fun, kind of a cool scene.
1: Was it sketchy moments like that that led you to want to get out of it?
0: no it became more i want to say the ignorance of the scene which is a little bit i think what we are fighting right now in this country is like you know whatever no one is willing to give or take at least a little bit of an understanding of the others you know like i i remember like uh, uh Back then, you know, like, everyone was like, oh, yeah, those Nazi skinheads, they should just be sent to a concentration camp and, and killed. I'm like, okay, but I, I don't understand. Wouldn't that be making us then like the Nazis in a way if we want to do the same thing to them? You know, there was just – it just got very, very extreme, and it's a little bit mm-hmm. what you see nowadays, you know, where there's, like, it's either this or that. You know, there's no, like, there's no – Middle ground. Yeah, like you know what, it it doesn't have to be that harsh and extreme, left or right, you know. Um so I think that was the main reason because I still love the music. I still listen to punk music and I've heard I just read the the Descendants are coming out with a new album in June. And you know, I mean those guys are like my age now or older, you know, and i I gonna get that album, I already know.
1: So. let's dig a little bit deeper into that. What is your relationship with music like now? You still follow the bands? Do you still play yourself at all? No, I don't I don't play at all anymore. Um, but I and
0: I don't I wouldn't say I follow the music, but you know, if I see something online or something and it's an interesting article, I I read it and if I hear, Oh wow, like The Sentence coming out with a new album, I'm like, Oh, I kind mm-hmm. check that out, you know. So I I wouldn't say I follow it, but I'm still interested in it.
1: In non-COVID times, do you still go to shows?
0: Not really. I've just gotten tired of it. I've been to so many live shows because back in the days when I was in a band, I mean, it was every weekend. I either played or was like on tour crewing with some of my friends' bands. And I, I don't know, I must have been to like thousands of concerts in my life, like small nightclubs. So I'm like, you know what, I'd rather sit at home and drink a glass of wine and relax.
1: Do you see any parallels between your time as a musician and what you experience now as a runner?
0: I guess in in a little ways, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's what attracted me to ultra running. It reminded me a little bit of the punk scene, because everything was sort of small and underground and secretive and no one really knew. And, you know, like, if you would tell someone 15 years ago or so, oh, yeah, I'm running ultra race. They're like, what is that? You know, and then and uh, it was kind of the same with the punk scene versus now, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you look at punk bands and it's like, I mean, like whatever Green Day, they have like a play on Broadway and crazy stuff like that, you know, so, um, and ultra running is moving into that a little bit as well with it getting more commercial and more public and everyone wants to be part of it. And, you know, those kind of things, there's definitely, um, similarities, I would say.
1: How does the growth of ultra running make you feel? Ooh, that's a big question.
0: (laughs) Um... I think it's good in many aspects because there's a lot of guys who I think deserve to be able to, to turn this into a legitimate job and be a professional runner. Just like, I mean, I mean, same with like marathon running or, or track running. I mean, you know, it's like, which is still hasn't really made it. I mean, if you look at like, if you're like a, 27, 30, 10,000-meter runner, you probably have no sponsors, you know, because um, all the money goes to the sprint team or whatever, you know. So, um, so I think ultra running, same thing. There's so many guys that are so talented and work so hard that I feel deserve a piece of the pie. And so with more money coming in, hopefully that goes towards them. So I think it's, it's, it's good for that. But I think it's also gonna like take away a little bit from the the cool vibe, you know. Just like yeah, I I remember like going to like a big festival and seeing like bands like like Rage Against like Rollins Band, Henry Rollins, Rollins Band in front of like twenty five thousand people, and that was a really cool concert. But I also saw Rollins Band before it was when it was just called Henry Rollins in a club in front of 150 people. And that was a much cooler experience. They were different, you know. Um, and so I'm just, I just hope that, and I think ultra running in the U.S. will not get that commercial, mostly due permit mm-hmm. issues. I mean, Western States will never be a UTMB. It's just not possible because they can't have 3,000 people running through the national forest. you know. So I think due to regulations, it worries me a little less that we get into those ginormous mega events. You know, we may see some of them um, where, they may, where they're able to do it due to the race course and permitting stuff. But I think a lot of the classic races won't change that much just because... They 're on protected lands versus in europe mm. it 's a lot easier
1: I appreciate that perspective, especially from someone like you who 's been in this sport for a long time. I personally think the two can coexist and it 's healthy if they if they coexist because on some level they 're going to appeal to the same people, but they 're also going to appeal to different crowds as mm. well and It can all be cool, uh, and it can be accessible to a wide audience, much like you've described with music. Yeah. The the, the only thing is, is like, you know, sometimes
0: if big players gobble up, and I think you mentioned that in your talk with, with Debo the other week, if the big players come in and they start gobbling up, like, smaller races just to control them, and then they just pretty much eat their soul and, and then the race has nothing left. Because, you know, the, the race director who was a cool guy is gone. And now it's run out of a corporate office. And, it, you, you know, those things could be negative, I want to mm. say. Because then suddenly, see, right now, it's, you have the option. Like, in, in, in Europe, I mean, you can go to UTMB but there's plenty of smaller grassroots mountain races as well. But if the big ones eat up the little ones, or no one wants to do the little ones anymore because you have to do all the associated races from a race series to then be able to do the big one, you can't just cherry pick, then some of the small races may go away, and that would be sad. And I think that's the danger that that I see.
1: I want to bring this... Back to you. When did you first come to the U.S.?
0: So first time I went to uh, Washington, D.C., visiting someone that I knew there. And um, then like two years later, um, I came to California for some work stuff. And uh, that's where I met my wife. So um, and then... At one point, we decided we're going to live in Germany or here, and we decided to live here. So that's, it's kind of, that's the very, very like, quick, fast, short story of it. You know, It's a lot more complicated, but, um, but it was all, again, it was running-related. So running has been a big factor in my life. You know, Running made me start my own business. Running, I met my wife because running. Um, that's how I ended up here. You know, so running has always been a big factor. Uh, uh, a big factor in my life I and mean, i think that's why i still enjoy running at my age versus just being done with it i know so many guys who are really fast and they're like i'm done i don't want to run anymore why are you still running i'm like because i still love it and it's just it's it has become part of me
1: well and it's given you so much more than just results and yes times, I mean, as you've just described, you've got friendships and relationships. And I mean, this is now your adopted home because of running. I mean, largely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. So, I mean, to to, to elaborate, I, I used to do all the design work um, for Hind Europe. Remember Hind? Mm-hmm. The I do remember Hind. One of my
1: first technical running shirts was a Hind running shirt. Yep.
0: They, they invented the running tights right here in San Luis Obispo. And so, I worked for the European distributor. And so I, I designed all the catalogs and everything. And um, they were the main reason why I started my own business. I started publishing a running magazine, kind of a little bit like, you know, fits into your background. And then they hired me. And between the running magazine and doing all that catalog work and everything, I had enough work to launch my own business. And then... They flew me out here um, for a photo shoot, and that's where uh, my wife was the operations manager and so that's how we met and Then I came back and came back and then decided to move here and we got married and you know and that's how I ended up here so it was in a way running made me start my own business because the running magazine and then that's how I got hind Europe as a client, and then that led me to get have to come out here for work, which is where I met my wife. And, you know, so running has always been a, a, I I don't know how the right word for it, sort of
1: a a guide or a springboard. Yeah, guide or connective tissue. I mean, one thing led to another, and here you are on the Morning Shakeout podcast.
0: (laughs) And I'm still running at age 53.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about this running magazine that you started. Was this back in Germany?
0: yeah, oh yeah that's like I was like maybe twenty seven twenty eight yeah twenty seven eight twenty
1: eight years old What was it called
0: um it was um it was called Running Times, just like the american <laughs> magazine and, was it modeled uh,
1: after the american magazine? no
0: it was um, i I just thought from my music background, it just sounded. I mean, there was Runners World, which was the only magazine because they were global. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: um, it it just sounded kind of cool because, you know, like with my music background, I always liked English sounding things. And it essentially got started, well, out of, I will show you so, kind of a reaction. Because um, I was on this team and in, in our state, there was like two main teams that were like, Sort of, I want to say, ruling the state championships. And the two coaches, well, the one coach, which was the coach of my team, was older. And he was a very famous German runner at the time. And he had coached this younger guy who was a top level athlete. Then they started a running store together. And then they became enemies, broke up the running store. And started competing running stores and became both coaches in competing clubs. And so I was in this one club and the guy from the other club started a running magazine. And it was kind of, it was kind of like on the level of like, I would call it a printed newsletter. It was like black and white and, you know, it was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty bad from a design standpoint. This and, other guy's? Yes. Okay. And it would really piss us off because he would have like a report about like state championships, state championships cross country. And our club would win the state championships and we would get like one, three, four, and five. And he, the headline would read such and such second place at state championships because he was his athlete. And so we got always really mad. And then some of my running buddies from the club, they were like, Well, you do design and you know printing and all that stuff. Why don't we do our own magazine? And we're like, hmm, okay. You know, and so I started as a side gig after work designing this magazine. And of course, competitive as I am, it had to be better than the other ones. Of and course. so it was like it was like full color and like really great photography. And I mean for the time, you know. And um so yeah, the magazine started, it got launched and everyone in my club helped me with like writing articles and stuff. And, and it, it was really good, but it was hard to sell it. It was a lot of effort to go to race day and have a booth and sell it for like three bucks because people didn't really buy the magazine. Mm-hmm. So for the second issue, I came up with this idea, which you can be familiar with, where it's free. We'll just drop them off at the race, a big stack, and it's free, you can just pick it up and read it. But therefore, it will have more advertisers. And so, versus the other guy's magazine, we're still costing money. So I came out with issue number two, and it's free. And every running store suddenly said, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, we carry it, because we can just hand it out for free as a little giveaway into the bag Mm -hmm. when they buy a pair of shoes. And the advertisers loved it because they're like, oh, well, if it's free, everyone's going to take it. So they see my ad. So I started selling more advertisements and it turned out to be pretty good. So that's the whole story of the, my, my, my publishing career.
1: <laughs> How long did you publish the magazine for?
0: Uh, for about a year and a half. And, yeah. um, and through that, I got a lot of other clients. So I, essentially after like two issues, I started making it a full-time business because I got other clients like Hind Europe and smaller running mm-hmm. stores. Hey, can you design our ad and stuff like that? And then, yeah, about like a couple of years after that is when I met my wife and then ended up moving here.
1: I love that story. And it reminds me a bit of my time at Competitor Magazine, mm-hmm. which had a very similar business model. You couldn't subscribe yep. to it, didn't cost anything. Yep. It was free, supported by advertising and primarily carried by running stores i I mean you you kind of beat us to the business model that's
0: that's why like um why i brought it up because when i moved here i would pick up competitor and i was like oh oh it's same kind of a thing you know
1: so yeah what was the experience of actually moving to the u.s like for you knowing that this was going to be your new permanent home
0: um well, it was it was pretty exciting because I think growing up I always listened to like, you know, like American punk bands, like like LA bands, you know, like Black Flag and all those classic LA punk bands and and so so it was kind of it was kind of a, a cool thing and then obviously I was like, you know, my wife, so I, I mean I followed my heart here, you know, and that was cool and everything was new and exciting because so different than Germany you know it's like uh not as like it's just a little more relaxed especially in California and where I live San Luis Obispo it's just a very mm-hmm. kickback city and um, so it was wasn't really that hard it was hard language wise because my English wasn't that good so my my wife and I were still joking like you know I mean we would literally go out to dinner and we would carry like a little pocket dictionary you know because it's before iPhones or anything, you know, before any of the Google Translate stuff, you actually had to bring uh, a little dictionary and I would be like, oh, what, how do you say that? Oh, this word, you know, kind of a thing. So, um, um, that was probably the, maybe the biggest challenge, you know.
1: Was your education in English up to that point primarily through the music that you listened to or had you studied it formally at all? I had like, some school English but like I mentioned earlier I was a pretty bad
0: student regardless of what the subject was Mm -hmm. I just didn't I just didn't care about school you know I was just like and I didn't have the support at home and stuff and um, so um, yeah I was mainly from like playing all over Europe you know where we, we would tour with like American bands for like five days and play in Italy and the only common language you have is English you know so so it's kind of a little bit like Jimmy rigged butchered together, kind of
1: English. When you moved here, what were the biggest differences that you noticed in the running cultures from Germany, where you grew up, to California, which became your new home?
0: Um, I want to say the biggest difference, and that's still somewhat true today, is like the whole high school, college running versus club running mm-hmm. kind of a thing. You know, yeah. like, I mean, in Europe, running is not really part of school. There's no, I mean, if you go to a college, you're not really, you're running for your club essentially. And some colleges, they still have a club, but it's not, it's not, you don't go to a college to run there. You don't get a scholarship to go to college for running or anything. So it's usually academics and not sports. And here was kind of a little bit weird because here it seems like most of the running clubs, unless obviously if you go to like whatever bigger cities where you have like a Santa Monica track club used to be or something, they're generally only for sort of, I want to say, like true amateur joggers, you know, people that just meet and and there's not really track meets for those people. Like in Germany, I mean, the club I was in, we had like – like, three or four guys that ran, like, sub-30. And then we had, like, a bunch of guys, sub-33. And, like, sub-33 was considered sort of, I want to say the varsity team, you know, where you got, like, training camp paid for and stuff. But we had people in our running club, they would run 45 minutes. And they would still come to the track workout. And they would still go to the same state championships. They would just run in, like, Heat number five and finish their ten k on the track in forty two minutes. Versus here, it seems like you're either in a lead or you're like, and you're on some whatever like a a Hoka NASA lead or something. Mm -hmm. But if you're like more of a average guy that can run like thirty five minutes in a ten k, there's no club for you really.
1: Yeah, it's more of like a developmental system over there than we have here in the U.S. Do you think such a thing could work here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't see why not. You know, I mean, we have all the infrastructure and everything. I mean, we're like from... It's not like we're like culturally that different versus Mm -hmm. like maybe Asia or Africa where there's quite a bit of cultural differences, you know. Um, I I think it could work and I think it would be beneficial. I think... It's even worse in soccer. Like in soccer, we have this whole club structure and then our leagues that you can move up through and stuff. I mean, the U.S. has more kids playing soccer and probably more talented soccer player kids than anyone in the world. And we still stink on the world level in soccer, you know. Uh, I mean, not that Germany is that good right now either, but that's... That's a whole different story.
1: Yeah, that's another conversation for um, a different podcast. And I,
0: and I think with running it's very similar. I see so many talented kids and they're really talented in high school and they're running like eight forty-five as like juniors and then like in college you hear maybe something and then they never make it in their adult life. And it's like why? I mean something's already not going right you know i mean if you look at i mean it's finally getting better but like why don't we have like i mean here's the big deal like in arizona when there was like what eight guys sub 210 or whatever it was you know i mean we should have like 50 guys running sub 210 in the united states i agree completely you know i mean based on based on the talent i mean i mean i, I look at guys in my like younger son's high school team who are like sophomores and they're running like four 25 miles and like why shouldn't they be like two ten marathoners in 15 years when they're 30 years old you know but i think we just don't have the right i think it's too much too early and then not enough support it's kind of like we, we put everything in support that should happen between age Fifteen and thirty, we put into like four years of high school and four years of college, and after that, good luck, <laughs> you know. And and in college, I mean, it's it's like this whole like a, a, a multi race thing, you know, where you see like those kids they're running like like just last week college championships, like the guy ran like the five thousand on Friday and the 10,000 on Saturday and then probably the relay on Sunday and same in high school. I see those kids, they run like the 800, the mile, and the two mile. The and same day. Yeah. A- and then they do two workouts in that week. you know. And then, like, then they get to college and they're injured. They're redshirting the first year because they're injured. And in the second year, they finally get back to where they were in high school. And in the third year, they have a breakthrough and run maybe – 13.50, and then they get out of college and they never go anywhere because there's no support system and they're probably burned out too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for all the reasons that you just described, I mean, that's a vicious cycle um, yeah. to feel that pressure to over race and perform which probably gets you injured uh which forces you to rush back and then there's that pressure to perform again and it just becomes a, a vicious cycle i mean I, I agree i mean i think that's cost us a lot of talented runners in this country mm-hmm. because that's how the system is set up
0: yeah so i think that's like the main difference in running in, in german in german The system's a little bit better that way, I would say, with clubs and stuff, and we just unfortunately don't have the sheer number of talent.
1: When you came here, were you able to find a club or a group to train with, or were you primarily on your own and maybe running with a handful of people a few times a week?
0: That's essentially what it was. Um, um, I I moved here, and I I was kind of an outsider, and like, you know, so I... I would go on a few runs with some of the locals, like, you know, like, uh, uh like, actually, my first run here was with, like, Mark Conover, mm-hmm. Joe Rubio, um, I don't know if you know Mondo, Mondo Siqueiros, he was also like a sub-30 guy out of that same group, they're all Reebok Aggies, you know, obviously, right. Mark Conover won the Olympic trials, and Joe Rubio, you know, Joe, was, like, founder of Running Warehouse, and sub-220 marathon guy. And that was my first run. He
1: coaches the Aggies,
0: if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. And then, um, but I still had a coach in Germany. And so my training was a little bit different. So I never really connected with them. And then shortly thereafter, I met Linda. And she was kind of, well, similar to me. She had just moved here, but had a coach still up in the Bay Area. And so we kind of started running together. And so I never really got into that other group. And so it became kind of like our own little mini group with like mostly me, Linda, and a couple other friends. Um, And that kind of lasted for the longest time.
1: You mentioned how you and your wife met essentially through running. What place does running have in your relationship to this day?
0: Oh, my wife, I think she's, she's a bigger running nerd than I am. Really? Oh, I mean, she like, She, so, so, I mean, she knows, like, everyone. I mean, we go to high school meet, she can tell you every time of every one of the kids. I mean, she's just, like, so into, like, numbers and and what their PRs are and where they ran what. And, oh, oh, yeah, you would, like, if you as ATF would ever need, like, a statistics person or (laughs) something, I mean, she would be the perfect match. I mean, she's always been, like, kind of an Excel spreadsheet production planner kind of a person and now with running oh yeah she's like she knows like oh yeah Luke's 1.2 seconds away from qualifying for CIF and you know because this kid ran this time and this kid ran that time and oh yeah she's like she's more nerdy than I am so um but she has a lifelong running background as well I mean she well She's part of the system that broke her. She was like a really, really talented youth runner. She went like a two, she ran a 223 as an 11-year-old girl. Wow. Yeah, I think she was ranked number three in her age group at the time in the nation. And then she ran for Santa Monica Track Club. But then, I mean... They would back then already with like, you know, 13, 14 year old kids do like 60, 70 miles a week. And uh, wow. she uh, eventually went to Carpoly in Slow here to run for Carpoly, But pretty much her first year was injured, second year injured, and then just never really got back into it. Because, like, but again, in high school, she would do like, 800, the mile, the two mile, and the 400, the 1600 relay, the four times four. Yeah. You know? So. Do the two of you ever run together? Not really. She we used to, but now she, she doesn't really run that much anymore. She just like she likes hiking and going swimming. It's just like with her back and, and stuff, because you know she had two kids and um, so her body is just a little bit too broke for running. So she, we well, go hiking together and, and like, she loves swimming. She goes swimming all the time.
1: You have two boys who have two running crazy parents. Is it something that they were interested in or that you introduced to them at an early age or that they're involved with to any degree?
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, uh they got born right into me starting ultra running and, you know, I mean, that's, Obviously, there's no better sport than that as, like, an experience for kids because you can really be part of it. And, you know, I mean, they go to, like, whatever, Western states, and you wait at the aid stations, and you can really be part of it versus just getting dragged along. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know. My, my dad used to play soccer when I was a little kid, but all I remember is being on the playground next to the soccer field versus my kids, they were truly taking part in it. I mean, I remember like, I mean, they they ran the last lap on the track with me at Western States and they grew for me and handed me bottles and, you know. Um, but I never really pushed them into running, but they both came to running on their own. And it's obviously, if, if you see your dad do it all the time and your mom supporting him. And um, I remember my older son, Dylan, I think he was like six or seven. He's like, I want to go for a run with you. I'm like, okay, right, sounds good. And then, you know, we, we went for like a, some running. And then like a couple months later, he was like, I want to run a 5K. I'm like, okay, sure. And we ran a 5K together, you know. And then he became a pretty good uh, uh, youth runner, you know, qualifying for nationals, cross country and stuff like that. And then um, my younger son, Luke, which you have met in Lettville, um, he mm-hmm. um, he obviously sees what I'm doing, what the older brother's doing. So he wanted to do it too. And so they both got into it. Um, Dylan had some unfortunate events to high school. He got injured and then had to like right in the middle in cross-country season a year and a half ago when he was like one of the top varsity guys. And then was just getting better with, track season coming around, and then track season didn't happen because COVID. And then through that whole COVID year, he kind of lost interest. And, he, and he's a senior. He has other mm-hmm. hobbies, you know, girlfriend, and he makes music, and he makes films. And so he kind of, he's not running right now, but he says, I like running, and i going to run again. But just right now, I just have other things to do. And then mm-hmm. Luke, who just turned 16, he's running at the high school. And, um, and I, I try to keep an eye on him to not overdo it. And like, I'm like, so this season, mostly he's been running the 800 and the 200, which has hurt him a little bit because all his friends beating him in the mile, because he's focusing on the 800 and I haven't focused running some 200s to get faster. So I always tell him you need to get faster. Can
1: get, yeah, get fast first. So You think he could beat you in a mile right now?
0: Yeah, I think he's finally there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I mean, back when I was on Instagram, some of my favorite photos that I would see would be ones that you would post running, mostly with Luke, I think, um, Mm -hmm. on the trails or if you guys were away on vacation, just sharing some miles together. And I mean, my dad's not a runner at all, but I just always think like, oh, how cool that would be at that age, be able to share something like that with your parents or in your case, like to be able to share that with your kid who's firmly in his teens at that point.
0: Yeah. And I, I I think, you know, obviously there's this phase when you're a teenager where your parents are just like, they bother you and they go on your nerves just because Mm -hmm. the age you are. But I do think they will look maybe even right now, they may be like, sure. I will go for a run with you. Like like Luke, he usually Thursday mornings I do a track workout all by myself. And um, the last four weeks, he's been uh, going with me, and he's just he just he warms up with me, and then he just hangs out and gives me my splits. And you know, he may think right now oh, that's kind of goofy, but I'll do it because I'm a nice kid. But I know in twenty years he's gonna look back and be like, "That was so cool when I used to go to the track with my dad." You know, mm-hmm. so I think uh, those things that just they get kind of ingrained in you, and eventually you learn how valuable they are. Even so, you may not appreciate them right there in that moment at that time.
1: A few more things before we wrap up this conversation. I want to talk to you about design. You have your own company, Craftwork Design. You mentioned how design running magazines. I know you do a lot of work for wineries in your area. You helped our mutual friend Brett with all his branding for SFRC. When did creativity first come into your life?
0: Oh, gosh, long time ago, I was like, um, back in my punk days, I actually, um, I created like a little punk fanzine, you know, kind of uh, like photocopied, you know, cut and paste, and I would photocopy it like secretly at in our at my workplace. And then, like, would sell them on the local shows for, like, a dollar, you know, and make some money on the side. So, um, and I was, like, at age, whatever, 15, I would design our, the the demo tapes that we would make for the band. I would design the cover and our tour posters and stuff. So I've always been in some form or shape doing stuff like that. Um, And then, yeah, and then I obviously turned into a profession, worked in a design agency in Germany until... I launched a running magazine, and then when I moved here into the U.S., um, I wanted to find something that's local, and I grew up in wine country, so I have a lot of knowledge about wine in general through my upbringing. And um, the agency I worked for, we did a lot of wine-related work. And so when I moved here, I was like, oh, there's wine country here. Great. And this is like when Central Coast, wine country, was really – That's even when Napa wasn't really that known. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I got in on the ground floor and made some connections, got some good clients, and then since then it's just grown to what we're like right now. One of the probably top design firms if it comes to wine and spirits-specific design um, in California, I I would say.
1: Who or what over the years has informed or influenced your approach to design?
0: Wow. That's a, that's a tough question because there's like, I, I, I always said, like, I got this asked once in like some design magazine interview that I did. And they, they said, how would you describe your style of design? And there's a similar question. And, uh, I said, well, my style is to not have a style. And, and because I think as a good commercial designer, it's different than an artist. If you're an artist, you're like known for your style, right? Oh yeah, you know, this is like a Van Gogh or it's a whatever it is, right? And um, a Picasso or whatever, right? You know, oh yeah, that's that style. But I think a commercial designer has to adapt to the needs and the style of whatever brand he designs. I mean, we have like clients literally, I mean, we have like designed 30 different winery brands within like a 20 mile radius of each other. Mm -hmm. If I would force my style onto them, they would all look the same and it wouldn't work. And so that's why I would say my style is to like adapt and have no style and adapt to what makes most sense. Now, how does that relate to your question to go back to that? What influences me? And I think it's, it's the same thing. It's just, I think a a good designer walks around with open eyes and you gotta get influences and ideas from completely unrelated things. You may see like an advertisement for a luxury car and like, wow, That's really cool. And then you can apply maybe that influence to like a wine brand, you know, versus just looking at, oh, what are all the wine brands doing? So I think it just comes down to like an open mind. And with that said, I don't think there's any specific influence. It's just I I always have my eyes open and look around like, oh, wow, this looks cool, you know, kind of a thing regardless of what it is.
1: What does that approach look like for you when you're working with a client, particularly a new client?
0: Well, I mean, there's... First of all, it's not just me. I have a a team of very talented people working with me, you know? Um, And um, it's just figuring out who is the client? Who are they? You know, are they like... You know, some clients, they... And be realis- realistic about it. Some, they, they may think they're really cool and hip, but they're not. Their brand, their story, their facility, everything's like conservative. So, well, we can't force you into like a cool and hip package because that's not going to work. You know, so it's like getting to know a client really good and doing that whole exploration for, phase first and like discovery and figuring out who they are. You know, and then also knowing who, who they wanna be. Mm-hmm. And then see hopefully those things line up. And if they're not, then you have to figure out how to make that
1: work. Here's a random question. Is it hard for you in observation, maybe when you come across say like a running brand, for instance, mm-hmm. and they're not a client of yours but you're familiar with them and maybe their product and you've looked at their branding and you just look at it and you say, like, that's not who you are. Like, that's not consistent. And do almost like this thought experiment in your own head of like, here's what I would do with this particular brand.
0: Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> it's, it, it actually it, it drives me nuts when I, when I see stuff. I'm like, really? That just makes no sense you know so yeah it i it really bothers me <laughs> i sometimes i sometimes feel like i would just like say hey let me fix it for free just so i don't have to like be bothered by it you know um but then the thing is it's always easy to criticize other people's work you never you never know right how they ended up there there was maybe I, I've seen it with projects that we do, you know, where suddenly an owner has a very strong opinion and he says, no way, this is how, we, how it has to be. And you're like, I don't think it's right. I don't think that's going to work. And then he's like, but I don't care. It's my deal. And then, uh, okay, at the end of the day, it's their, it is their brand, you know? And you end up with something where it's like, okay, I don't think that's the right thing. So you never know if I see something like that. Could have been the same situation, you know, could have been... That someone just got overruled by someone who has bad taste or bad Mm decision-making. You just never know what the true story behind it is, you know? Yeah. Like an example, the Verizon logo. I mean, Verizon is such a huge company, and I don't want to know how much money they spend on what kind of a design agency to have the logo they have, right? It's just awful. But I, I don't know, maybe there's some bigger story behind it, why they ended up with it.
1: Yeah, so you just, you just never know. I find myself doing the same sort of thing with coaching sometimes. You mm-hmm. see an athlete who you don't work with, but you're familiar with their training because you can either follow it on Strava, and then obviously you could see the end result in races. And you're like, that, that's not how I would do it. I wouldn't do it that way. But you know, on the flip side, I don't know the whole story. I don't know the yeah. athlete that well. I don't know the coach's rationale for why they've programmed their training in in a certain way. And I've always just, I've always just found that curious, regardless of like what field you're in. If you, you know, in your case, design, you look at design and branding of a different brand. You're like, you know, I just, I wouldn't do it that way. I just, yeah. I, I'm super interested in that sort of stuff because you get some, you get some interesting answers, just like that one. Yeah. Well, I think
0: uh, you. What that, what that tells me about you is that you care.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: it's just you, you have a genuine interest and you care. And it's, just, it's the same with me. You know, if I have a genuine interest in design and I care. So if I see, like, a wine label and I was like, really? That's, that's as good as it got. And it's, and it's worse if it's someone that we were pitching for the business and we didn't get it. That's usually the worst. You know, if you're, like, competing for a project, mm-hmm and you don't get it, and then like three months later, you see the results, and you're like, wow, we would have done so much better. Obviously, you always think you could do better than the other firm, right? And that's like, uh, uh, but sometimes it's not just like, wow, this label turned out pretty good, it's really nice, I would have done it different, but this is very nice. Mm. Sometimes it's just like, okay, I cannot believe they spent the money they spent, to get this. That, that's, I think, the worst of all of them. A
1: yeah. couple more running-related questions and we'll wrap this one up. I mean, as we've talked about during this conversation, you're still running strong and competing well at the age of 53. You've got big goals ahead of you. I mean, you've also partnered with a number of different brands who support you and, quite frankly, leverage you in different ways. Why do you think many brands in the running space underestimate the value of top level age group runners because most of the athletes that we see sponsored are younger i mean crap like a guy or or female gets into their late 30s and a lot of brands are done with them i mean it happened to meb kafleski and then he ended up reinventing himself and having some of his best competitive years of his life but also some of his most meaningful like brand partnerships but i mean the the older, older athletes, especially when they get into their master's years um, and certainly into like their 50s and, and 60s, even if they're still competitive and, and there's a lot of runners who fit that bill, um, the brands aren't paying much attention to them. Everything is being marketed toward a younger audience. I'd really love to just get your perspective on all of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely say that like age group runners, like that of, really, at a certain age where they're really focused on age group. You know, like, I mean, there's plenty of guys that are in their 40s that are masters runners, but they're still, like, running into open races. And that worked for me as well up until mid-40s, 45, 46, you know. But after that, I was like, okay, I wait until I'm 50, and then I'm a true age group runner. And I think there's a huge value for a brand because you have no idea. I mean, you said it earlier. I'm, I mean, I'm an inspiration for a guy like you who's very mm-hmm. experienced in everything. And I get that all the time from like on my Instagram account where I get DMS and people are like, wow, you're such an inspiration. I'm the same age as you. And I'm like, I can't believe you still do what you're doing. And, um, from all kinds of ages. But, um, I, I think brands underestimate the value of that. Now, I think where I'm good at is I have a very strong Instagram follower and Instagram account, which helps, which a lot of guys my age don't have because they didn't keep up with the technology and they don't take care of it that much. And so they may have an Instagram account, but they have like 128 followers, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's definitely that to it. But... um, the, the advantage you, you have as an age group runner, obviously, at my age, I don't need to take on a sponsor to pay my travel to races or anything because I'm not good enough for that. Like if, a, if you take a superstar like a Jim Walmsley, so is he running in Hoka because they paid him the most money or is he running in Hoka because that's what he thinks is the best brand? right? I don't, I'm at a point in my life where I can just like, and I I get plenty of things with my Instagram account about doing, oh, do you want to do this influencer work for this brand? I'm like, no, thank you. I don't believe in this brand. It's just, it's something I don't use. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to really support it. Versus when you're younger, you don't have that luxury. So I think that gives an older guy like me a little more authenticity or, or, reason to believe that, that if I say, yes, this is really good, and I use it myself, that it's really facts versus just um, saying it because they pay my, my living expenses. Um, but, yeah, I would agree it's – people don't talk that much about it. And there's some – I mean, I ran Chet Smith, Rich Hanna, ran like a 550, 50-miler by himself. I mean, you know what? That's, like, insane. And he's, like, I think he's two years older than me. He's 55 or 56, you know? Um, it, it's just people don't give that enough credit. Like, even, like, even, like, a lot of, like, podcasts or, mm-hmm. like, like some of the, the YouTube shows, you know? Like, it only becomes a big deal again if you, like, really old oh this like 80 year old finish 100 miler or something you know which is fair deserves credit you know but it seems like that that gap in between like that that super master you know like that old but not super super old you know like that 50 to 70 or 50 to 60 and there's some legit runners out there you know i mean i'm like i mean I'm proud of myself and being part of that group, but there's some other guys who are, like, really killing it. You know, I, I, I just looked. I mean, I ran a 330, 50K, and I looked up. It ranks me num- number five in the world right now. But there's guys my age who are still running, like, 317, 50K. You know, that's, like, there's some really fast guys out there, and I don't think they get enough credit. And obviously women, too, you know, like, like you know, um, I feel that like deserves a little more recognition from the whole media, sponsors, whatever. And I, and I think it would be worth it, too, for especially for sponsors. You
1: know? yeah, I agree. And, I mean, guilty as charged. I need to do more of that with my platform on this podcast. And it's a big reason that I'm honored to have you on for this conversation. Because your perspective has been, I mean, hugely valuable to me as someone who looks up to you and will be your age someday, but also a lot of people who are listening to this, who, who are in a similar boat, but also other folks who are your age, who, you know, might be asking themselves questions as far as why they still do this or how they can do it better. Who should they look up to? But I mean, to your point, like whether it's advertising, whether it's media, whether it's, the athletes that brands are partnering with, there's just not a lot of them out there. And I'd like to see that change across yeah.
0: the Yeah. I, I think the the only thing where you sometimes see it, it's like when it's kind of like more like a clickbait sensationalism, you know, where right. it's like, oh yeah, look at this guy. He is 50 and at age 40, he was like a raging alcoholic and 200 pounds overweight and now he's this fit 50-year-old running marathons. Suddenly it becomes like a like a 60 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. like a like 2020 story, you know, like wow, look at that guy. But like I don't know, I think it's still pretty cool that I can fit into the same clothes that I fit in when I was 18. You know, but it would be much sto- better story if in between I would have been like a smoking, raging drug addict who was 300 pounds overweight, then that story would be really a good story versus, okay, yeah. and I don't know if that's really fair, especially to like some of the guys out there that I know, like, like, like Gene Pomier or like a Rich Hanna or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mark Murray or, or, well, well, Apti, you just said Apti on the show. I mean, are you kidding me? The guy's 44 years old. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous, and he probably doesn't get enough credit or sponsorship dollars for that
1: yeah no i and I can't speak to him specifically, but you're probably right in that, and there's nothing wrong with those other stories either they're incredible stories, but that's that's what gets the headlines, and that's yeah. why media outlets cover them that's why brands want to partner with those people because the story is really obvious where and I don't say this as an insult or in a demeaning way someone such as yourself who's been at this for a long time who's been very consistent it's just not as sexy of a story oh, on the surface yeah. you really yeah. have to dig into it to really appreciate the beauty
0: yeah i i, I agree and like you know often brands they want to go the easy way out mm-hmm. you, you know that's i mean that's why uh uh you know why i'm like uh really stoked about some of the brands that I'm working with because they really value that and they're like, oh yeah, no, this is this is cool, you know. But it's not it's not as easy as and marketable as like the other stories. You know, and often, like I said, often it's the easier way out.
1: My last question is a selfish one. I just turned thirty nine years old. I'm gonna be in the master's ranks next year. What advice do you have for me as someone who wants to love the sport and be getting after it as much as you do and as you are 15 years from now and beyond?
0: I don't, I don't think there's really a, 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 a general answer. You gotta do what you love doing. You know, Like in example, I love doing track workouts. I always have. Even training for 100 miles or whatever, I always love doing track workouts. And I haven't done that for a few years because I became an ultra runner. And I think that was a bad decision because I just, I just love the medium. I love everything. Warming up around campus, getting to the track, you know, like putting your shirt aside, doing your strides. The whole that, process. That, that little nervousness before the workout. And then when you're finished, you're done. And you have to sit in the car for five minutes before you can even drive home and you're wasted. But it feels so good when I get home. It feels like, and this this is independent of like times. I mean, obviously, I used to do those, my repeats in 4.55, and now they're in like 5.20 or 5.25, right? The times are different, but the effort is still there. It's still that same sort of feeling. And I think that is the biggest thing, to keep doing what you love. Whatever that is, it may be doing hill repeats, or it may be like running for like five hours every Saturday, whatever it is that you get the most enjoyment. Don't leave that behind for something that may be more beneficial to what you're going to be running in. Because like at this age, I don't think doing the, the, the more perfect training is going to make you that much faster. It's like different. I think when you're like 25, certain workouts you may don't like, but you do them because they make you faster. But in my age, I don't do that anymore. I mean, I still have some workouts where I'm like, oh, I don't really like doing that workout because I just want to get the easy way out and chicken out. you know. And that's where it's good having a coach. It's just like, Nah, you're just lazy. Just go and do it, you know. Um, and that just happened this week, actually. <laughs> and, um, but mostly doing the things that you love doing, whatever that is. You know, and then, uh, and then obviously staying healthy. That's like, obviously, for a lot of people, the tough part, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I mean, I know people, they would like to do track workouts, but they can't because... They know they're gonna get hurt, and you know, obviously, then you have to find the, the second most liked thing, and and keeping your keeping your speed up if you want to still run competitive. You know, it's like like slugging along at 10 minute pace in an ultra. I mean, that's not that hard as a 50 year old, but still running fast is hard. And but if you can still run fast, it makes the slugging along at 10 minute pace a lot easier.
1: I love it i can't think of a better place to wrap up this conversation thomas i've really enjoyed the last hour and a half or so and it's been a real pleasure to have you on the morning shakeout podcast
0: yeah well thank thank you for having me on like um it it was really cool to actually have this chat in a more official formal way and actually share it with everyone so
1: thanks right thank you so much for listening in to the morning shakeout podcast a big thank you to both boa and picky bars for sponsoring this episode of the show boa wants you to get dialed in locked in and connected to the trail in the new boa powered la sportiva cyclone Available in men's and women's sizes, every aspect of the shoe is engineered to deliver revolutionary fit and performance on the trail, and it was designed and tested in BOA's state-of-the-art performance fit lab to improve running efficiency and reduce landing impact. BOA is exclusively offering four morning shakeout listeners the opportunity to win a free pair of the Cyclone, and you can enter at boafit.com mario. That's B-O-A-F-I-T dot com slash Mario. Picky Bar's products are made with real ingredients that I can pronounce and recognize, and there's a peace of mind that comes with not second-guessing what I'm putting into my body. The bars are a go-to for me before a run, and even when I'm just out running errands, particularly the Ah Fudge Nuts flavor and I can't get enough of the PB&J All Day Granola in my yogurt. If you want to try some picky products for yourself while supporting the podcast, go to pickybars.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario at checkout to save 20% off your purchase of 25 bucks or more. You can also join the Picky Club at that link, which is a subscription service, and save 20% off your first box with the code MARIO. Super easy, amazing offer. Take advantage of it while you can at PickyBars.com slash Mario. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, ten minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.